0: Episode of here birdie birdie birdie. Uh. Hey there, birders. I'm interrupting this introduction to let you know, I changed my mind. This is gonna be episode four and not episode three. As you probably know, I put out an episode of bird news and I wanted it to be more timely, so I swapped out this episode that I had already finished with episode three bird news. So this is gonna be episode four, Vermilion Flycatcher. I hope you enjoy. Meanwhile. This is Inez de Tucson, and today we're going to explore one of my very favorite birds that I have the honor of coexisting with here in the Sonoran Desert, the vermilion flycatcher. My love of birds began around the age of about four years old, but that's a story for another time. Uh, Basically, though, when I was in elementary school, there was a small section of books, maybe 10 or 12 books about birds, and I discovered them at some point And by 4th or 5th grade, those were the only books I was reading. I would take them out one after another and read them over and over and over. I remember spending hours and hours looking at the pictures, reading the descriptions, memorizing the uh, maps. And one day my mother and the librarian got together. And they decided that I really needed to expand my reading repertoire. So the next time... We had library class. The librarian told me that I wasn't allowed to take out any more bird books. She very kindly took me over to the fiction section and helped me look at a few. I didn't really find anything that I liked, but she recommended Stuart Little by E.B. White, which I took out because I kind of felt her frustration with me building up. So I I just wanted to get it over with. And I really tried to read Stuart Little and it's, you know, it's not a bad book but I just couldn't get into it. it. It wasn't very much fun for me. And I don't even think I finished it. So I took the book back the next week and the librarian asked how I liked it. And I said, I, I think I'm just not gonna read anymore. The next week when we had library again, the li- librarian came up and she told me that she and my mother talked about it and they decided that it was okay if I took out book books again. So that's first a story of my very terrible stubbornness as a child, and also a story of how much I really, really loved bird books when I was a kid. One of the books on that shelf at the school library was The Field Guide to the Birds by Roger Tory Peterson, published in 1947. It has a picture of an Atlantic puffin, a cardinal and a gross beak on a blue cover. In fact, I still have a copy of it on my bookcase. In that book are so many birds and beautiful drawings pointing out the distinctive features of each bird. And being a small kid in fifth grade or something, I didn't get very many places. So there were birds in this book that I put on a list called, I'm definitely never going to see that bird. This was a list of pretty much any bird that I hadn't already seen that was brightly colored. One of the birds on that list was the Vermilion Flycatcher. And I don't know if you can hear behind me, but the Vermilion Flycatcher is one of the birds calling behind me today. And it's one that I hear almost every day. remember the first time I saw a vermilion flycatcher in real life. It was in Austin Texas with my friend and we had hired a bird guide for the day. He took us to all the hot spots around Austin and what's really cool about Austin is if you're on the eastern side of it you see eastern birds and if you're on the western side of it you see western birds. So we were on the western side and he had put a tape of a screech owl and within 30 seconds there were birds flocking in. I had my eyes on a fantastic bird which escapes me at the moment, but into my binocular view flew a bright, orangey-red bird with black wings, and I yelled out, Vermilion Flycatcher! And then I stopped and I doubted myself. I was like, how did I know that bird? Am I sure about that? I had never seen it before, but it was so ingrained in my memory from when I was a kid as a bird I was never gonna see. And there he was right there. So for the kids out there, don't make judgments about what your life is gonna be like and what you're gonna see and not see. There's so much out there and you're gonna get to make your own decisions one day and you'll be able to go and see whatever it is that you want to see. Let's start with the taxonomy, because this one is actually fun. The genus and species for a typical vermilion flycatcher is Pyrocephalus rubinus. And I say typical because there are about a dozen subspecies that have been identified in its range, which is between Southwestern US, South through Mexico, Central and South America, including the Galapagos Islands. Uh, Typically it's counted as Pyrocephalus rubinus. And I love that name. Pyro from the Greek meaning fire and cephalus from the ancient Greek meaning head. So firehead. Rubinus from the Latin word ruber or red. So altogether it perfectly describes the bird as red firehead. Pyrocephalus rubinus. When you see this bird in full sunlight, his head really does blaze. I also checked my guide to birds of Mexico and northern Central America, and the authors Howell and Webb gave the bird the Spanish name Mosquero Carinal, which translates roughly to red flycatcher. As to the general impression of size and shape in this bird, the vermilion flycatcher is Phoebe-like, in fact, pyrocephalus is categorized with other Phoebes within the tyrant flycatchers. And I never knew this, but tyrant flycatchers are called that because of the very vigorous way they defend their nesting sites. They will dive and swoop at pretty much anything that comes near it, including um, humans. The male Vermilion flycatcher is a bright orange red bird with brownish black wings and a matching bandit mask over his eyes. He's a stout puffy bird, as one of my friends recently referred to him when comparing it to a cardinal. It's like a cardinal, only puppy. Although he's not as big as a cardinal, uh, he does have a rather plump body and a little shagginess on the crown of his head. I've often confused the female vermilion Flycatcher with the sage Phoebe. And I always have to stop and think about when I see a bird with pinkish undersides. So looking into this, I found that an easy way to tell the two apart is to look for the contrast between the white and pinkish on the female Vermilion Flycatcher, as opposed to the gray and pink of the Seize Phoebe. The Seize Phoebe's pinkish parts are also a little more salmon-y in color if you can get a good look at it. One would think after all these years that I would be able to tell the difference, but it was reassuring to see that the confusion between the two birds was uh, written in a couple of places, so I must not be the only one. The Vermilion flycatcher is another bird like the crystal thrasher that we talked about a while back, who is a resident of riparian areas. Again, riparian areas are those green areas Uh, that follow washes uh, where there's underground water usually in the the desert or sometimes it will typically follow a stream but everything else is brown around it green right where the water is those are riparian areas the vermilion flycatcher typically prefers kind of open country with scrubby trees and bushes like we have here in the sonoran desert it likes mesquites and greasewoods and cottonwoods. This is because of the way it feeds. It uses fly catching, which is where the bird sits in one place for a while and then swoops down to catch its prey from its perch. Then it usually returns to the same perch. Sometimes they might swoop between two different perches on different trees, but they'll keep coming back to the same spot over and over. I'm going to read here from Pete Dunn in his Essential Field Guide Companion on what he says about the Vermilion Flycatcher. A consummate but fairly casual perch hunter. Perches in the open, often high at the top of a bush, low atop a stiff weed or fence line, or on a branch below an open canopy. Moves threateningly on its perch, turning its entire body, including its head, fanning and bobbing its tail with a flourish. Usually takes prey in the air, but also makes forays to the ground where it sometimes hovers above the prey or settles with wings raised in a V. Very often returns to the same perch after a sortie. Vermilion flycatchers can usually be found perched alone, but often there's a mate nearby, especially during the uh, breeding season. Its song reminds me of a short police whistle like you would hear when they're directing traffic. It kind of zips up and and then down and repeats like this. While researching information about the song of this bird, I came across a new word for me, asin, that's spelled O-S-C-I-N-E. Assim awesome birds are a suborder of passerine, and passerines are basically all the perching birds that you know wrap their toes around a tree branch. And Ossin awesome birds are those perching birds that have highly adapted vocal apparatus for singing. Examples of Ossin awesome birds are orioles, finches, larks, and thrushes, like the American robin. Our vermilion flycatcher, though, is not part of the suborder. It's referred to as a subosin. A subosin has a different syrinx musculature and is considered more primitive than the osin. DNA sequencing and other data suggest that osins and subosins evolved from a common ancestor into two distinct clades, which means the split happened quite a while ago and each one is now evolutionarily independent from each other. All of the suboscines that live in America except for one are the suborder tyrannides. And the vast majority of them live in South America. They include birds like ant birds and ant thrushes, mannequins, gnat eaters, Here in North America, tyrant flycatchers are pretty much the only sub bird that we have. Honestly, as often as I've listened to flycatchers and tried to distinguish which one was which by ear, I never really thought about those sounds not really being songs at all. Scientists call the sound a vermilion flycatcher makes regularly repeated vocalization, or RRV, We'll just call it song here because it serves kind of the same purpose as song does in other birds. One of the really special things about sub is that unlike their awesome counterparts, their vocalizations seem to develop organically. In other words, they don't learn the song from another adult of the species. They have been shown to know their song even when they've never heard it before, and I think that's pretty special. So, remember that I said that the song of the vermilion flycatcher sounded like a police whistle? If you were a bird and you only had a police whistle to blow as your song, how could you differentiate yourself from other males? How would you attract a mate? Well, while the male can't change that sound, a study by Alejandro Ariel Rios-Chalin and team in Mexico found that vermilion flycatchers can use the number of repetitions, so how many, of those police whistle sounds and the length of pauses in between those sounds to communicate with each other like this. also noticed that males, and I'm quoting here, not only sang more, increased their song rate, but also sang longer songs, unquote, after nest building. They hypothesized that this change might be related to female fertility. Interesting. Its nest is a shallow bowl of twigs and grassy fibers placed in a horizontal fork of a tree look for it in the middle-ish range of the tree, not too high and not too low, kind of that Goldilocks spot. In 2008, Kevin Ellison of the American Bird Conservancy documented in the Wilson Journal of Ornithology that several pairs of vermilion flycatchers had reused their nests during a single season to raise more than one clutch. And these reused nests were more successful than newly constructed nests. He stated that the main advantage of this would be reduced nest predation. In other words, the nest has already proven itself to be in a good location away from predators, which is something that bird pairs have to consider when they build a nest. Is it high enough or remote enough so snakes and mammals don't blunder in and eat all the eggs? Of course, there may be no getting away from the dreaded brown-headed cowbird, But reusing a nest saved the birds about eight days of available breeding time in South Texas where Ellison made his study. So what do these guys eat? They're flycatchers and we would assume that's what they eat, flies. Actually, flycatchers eat all kinds of flying insects, including bees, wasps, beetles, and grasshoppers. They, as I said, sit on a perch, swoop down and around to catch the tasty bug, and return to the perch to eat it. Pretty normal stuff, right? Well, here's one thing. In 1993, Brenda Andrews, Marie Sullivan, and J. David Horath who worked for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Bureau of Land Management, documented a sighting on December 2nd, and again on December 4th, 1993, of an adult male vermilion flycatcher eating a small fish. Yes, fish. Wait, that's the second invertebrate eater that's been reported eating fish. Remember that American dipper in episode two? Hmm seems like maybe we have a lot to learn about what birds actually eat. So the first time the vermilion flycatcher was seen by this trio, it already had the fish in its mouth. So we can't know whether it actually caught the fish itself or scavenged it from the riverbed. But the second instance, the bird was observed directly trying to catch the fish. I'm going to quote here, Andrews returned to the area on 4 December 1993 and observed an adult male vermilion flycatcher on a small mesquite branch, 2.5 meters directly over the water. So they're talking here about the Hasayampa River Rest area, which is Southeast of Wickenburg in Maricopa County, Arizona. Continuing with the quote, after several minutes of observation, the flycatcher flew down breaking the surface of the water. It then hovered just above the water for several seconds before darting down into the water. The bird hovered, then darted into the water two more times. All four attempts were unsuccessful, They checked the water and didn't find any insects or other invertebrates in that area. But they did find large schools of long finned dace, which is an abundant native fish. They also saw Black Phoebe at the same spot, making a successful dart for a fish. So interesting, right? The vermilion flycatcher is common in the southwest and is harder to find in the winter than in the summer. Birds in the northern part of its range seem to migrate, but some birds stick around all year. That's the case here in Tucson. I'm sure to see a couple of vermilion flycatchers when I visit the dog park and the park down the street from me, even in the winter, especially if it's a warmer sunny day, but they are so much more common in the summer months. In June, 2020, an article was published in the Journal of Avian Biology that looked at the breeding success factors of one of the pyrocephalus subspecies, nanus, which resides in the Galapagos. The birds there have had a significant decline in population and they're classified as having a high extinction risk. The breeding success there has been pretty much miserable. So they experimented with a couple of different causes, one of them being the infestation of a parasitic fly, Fulwonus downsey, that was introduced. According to the Charles Darwin Foundation for the Galapagos Island, which is an international nonprofit organization dedicated to scientific research, Felonis Downsey, also known as the Avian Vampire Fly, was accidentally introduced and is causing havoc with a dozen bird species on the Galapagos, including the little vermilion flycatcher. The fly is adept at searching out bird nests and laying their eggs in the nest. And once the eggs hatch, the larvae find and feed on the blood of the baby birds and kill them, hence the name vampire fly. In the 2020 study, the researchers reduced the number of larvae by half in some of the nests and use other nests as a control. And surprise, once the larvae were reduced, the success of the nestlings was higher. Seriously though, this, Fly infestation is very serious. What would the Galapagos be without its Darwin's finches? Back in the United States, the vermilion flycatcher is in less danger. Cornell's All About Birds website lists the vermilion flycatcher of a bird of low concern over much of its range. However, like all desert species dependent on water supplies, the vermilion flycatchers are, of course, sensitive to our use of water, groundwater pumping, and land development that makes land not suitable for breeding. So that's it, the third episode of *Here, Birdie, Birdie, Birdie. I hope you enjoyed it and learned something from it. I surely did. If you'd like to hear more episodes, be sure to subscribe. And if you can, give us a good review wherever you downloaded this podcast so we can reach a wider audience. Until next time, stay birdie and nerdy, my friends.